So find your way to Matthew chapter 5, if you would. And we're going to continue on in our study of the Beatitudes this morning. Let me read for us from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, down through verse 12. If you are new, we are right in the middle of our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We've begun in the Beatitudes. We've done one Beatitude per week. And we will not keep up that pace of one verse per week, but it definitely has been helpful for us to get a grasp on what these truth statements, these statements of fact, uh, mean in their fullness to our lives as given to us by our Lord Jesus. And then as we get through the Beatitudes, we start into verse 13. We'll be going back to our paragraph preaching and teaching, and I trust that will be beneficial to you as we move a little bit faster through the remainder of the sermon. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, he probably had a plateau. When he sat down, his disciples, the twelve, came to him. So the crowds had gathered, but the disciples were the particular recipients of this uh, teaching. They were gathered and they came near to him, though the crowd would have been there as well. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, here's what Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this is the word of the Lord this morning. In particular, we are going to address verse 8 Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We've come to these Beatitudes with a central theme of the heart and addressing the heart and looking at this blessed life. The first word of every single one of these verses is the same. It carries the same content, the same idea, and we're going to look at it again today. As repetitious as that has become, it is beneficial for us to be mindful of what is intended for us here in the Beatitudes. As a side note, I had supper this week with some folks from church, and I had a great question asked to me. Why do we call the Beatitudes Beatitudes? What in the world does that mean? I thought that was a good question. Um, That's a question I should have asked a long time ago. Uh, Beatitude is uh, an English transliteration. You know what that is, right? That's a foreign language word that we just put into our own letters, and then we just use it instead of defining it. So translation is defining a word in our language. Transliteration is when we just copy the letters and we just say it. Beatitude is a transliteration of the Latin word beatus or beatitudo. And so it's been shortened down and it's been given to us as beatitude in English. So thank you to Ryan Phelan who asked that question. That's why they're called the Beatitudes. It's just from the Latin word, the designation of Beatitudo, which means happy, means blessed. So it's just a listing of blessedness. That's all that's meant by this. And that would have been the Latin heading that was given probably on the Vulgate 
when it was uh, translated from the Greek New Testament, Latin Vulgate, maybe we're moving into realms of the unknown. Uh, there was a Latin Bible. It was very important in our transmission to get the English Bible. It played a key role, and I'm sure that that was the heading that was over these Beatitudes. Blessed. The blessed statements. Okay? That's a side note. That has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about this morning, other than I'm going to refer to these as the Beatitudes from here on out, and now you know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. All right, page two. All right, the Beatitudes. There is a logical connection. We have talked about this in the past. There is a logical connection between these Beatitudes. Christ is not um, laissez-faire, just throwing out ideas. He's not just thinking, well, what should I say next? What are the attributes of the believer or the kingdom citizen? He is very intentional. He is on purpose with the order and the words that he gives us. I want to take just a little bit of a closer look because we've gotten far enough now into the second half of the Beatitudes to give you an idea of potentially the structure of what the Lord was thinking when he gave these. We see at the first Beatitude in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Second one is directly connected, blessed are those who mourn. That is the emotional response of poverty in spirit, right? Mourning for sin. We discussed that. We were challenged by that. The attitude that flows from the emotional response of mourning is meekness. It's an awareness of who I am in relation to who God is and then who I am in relation to who other people are. So meekness flows from the one who has seen his poverty, his utter lack of merit before God, and who has mourned for his sin. Verse 6 represents really what I believe is the centerpiece of the Beatitudes. It is the central culmination of all that is encompassed in the Beatitudes as they describe the kingdom citizen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You could picture this like a mountain. The first three Beatitudes are one side of the mountain, and then you reach the peak, the pinnacle, which is this attribute. Those who are kingdom citizens hunger and thirst. They are desperate. Remember, kingdom desperation. They are starving And they are dehydrated for righteousness, for the ethical demands of righteousness. And then we come down on the other side of the mountain, and we move into verse 7, and the second three Beatitudes are given. And really, verse 9 and 10 are together because the persecution flows from those who are peacemakers. Here's the first one, verse 7, blessed are the merciful. I believe you can see this, and this is called a chiasm. I'm not going to explain all of that, but these are connected by that centerpiece. Verse 1, the poor in spirit, their response to others is a merciful attribute of the heart. Those who mourn are those who will only, only those who will be pure in heart, for they see their sin for what it is. Those who are meek will be characterized by peacemaking, and the culmination of all of these beatitudes will be met in a group of people who are persecuted for righteousness sake there is so much to learn from these beatitudes so much to gather and i just don't want you to waste the opportunity to think that these are disconnected truth statements very much connected they begin at the right spot because that's where the messiah wanted us to start The characteristic of blessedness is only for those who are poor in spirit, and only those who are poor in spirit will truly mourn, and only those who mourn will have true kingdom meekness. 
And that will culminate in a hunger and a thirst for more of the same, for more righteousness. And it will be satisfied. The result of that hunger and thirsting will be a reflection of those characteristics in mercy, in purity, and in peacemaking. And so this whole of the first part of the sermon needs to be taken as a unit for you to gather and to glean as much as you can. Otherwise, you're left, as we've talked about before, with the danger of focusing on some external aspect of these Beatitudes. Last week, we talked about merciful. There is a thought that merciful people are represented in a list of mercy actions or acts of mercy. And so if you keep the acts of mercy and you do them, then you are merciful. But in fact, we have been talking all the way through the Beatitudes about the heart of the kingdom citizen. The blessed person is not the one who acts out mercy, but is characterized by merciful. It is an internal quality that is then produced in outward acts of mercy. And so the standard is much higher. Meekness is not just humility in a human sense. It is the awareness of who God is as the holy judge of the universe and who I am as a thoroughly sinful and desperate person. Therefore, my attitude towards others is meek because I see myself for who I am. The kingdom citizen sees themselves in light of who God is. So we come to this sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart. And we have a reminder, even in the beatitude, that the emphasis is on the inside, not on the externals. We've talked about that every single week. That the Sermon on the Mount is first and foremost about the kingdom. It's about kingdom citizens. This isn't just general moral teaching for human people, for mankind. This is for the kingdom. This is a description of the kingdom citizen. And then secondly, this Sermon on the Mount is all about the heart. Now, Why is it that the heart is such a central target? Why is the heart the centerpiece of the gospel? Why is the gospel not concerned first with what you do, but first and foremost, who you are. Why is that? Why does that become the centerpiece of our Lord's teaching? And it will continue to be the centerpiece throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Well, it's because the heart is the center of man's greatest need and his greatest problem. Some of these verses are very familiar to you. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart, that is the natural heart of man, the inner man, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It is defiled. It is wicked. Who can understand it? The rhetorical question is no one. For out of the heart, Matthew 15, verse 19 says, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Catch that list. From out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Those are heart problems. A murderer murders because of his heart. An adulterer commits adultery because of his heart or her heart. A liar lies because of their heart. 
It's the heart that is at the center of the problem. And to address the external without dealing with the heart is to slap a band-aid on an artery that has been cut. You may cover it for a second, but it is bleeding out. It is going to end in death. It's to give a cough drop to someone who has pneumonia. Let's try to stop them from coughing. Their lungs are in trouble. The heart is the center. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteousness, or righteous judgment rather, will be revealed. The heart is the basis of God's punishment of sinners. We see that God will punish, and he will for an eternity punish, those who never turn to him in faith through Christ. But understand that he is not first and foremost punishing a list of external actions as much as he is punishing a heart that is bent against his moral code against the revelation of his law as found in the scriptures. The heart is the center of the problem. Therefore, the gospel and the kingdom are concerned first and foremost with the heart. We can't think about this enough because our world says everything but the heart is the problem. So let me, let me get practical with you. Just by, This is all introduction, by the way. This has nothing to do yet with our beatitude. And I'm all fired up about it. That's the problem. Education will not aid man in making the right choices in life. Okay? Let's be practical. Education doesn't solve the problem. Because the problem is not one of knowledge. Education will never curb sin. Why? Because sin is not about what you know. It's about your heart. And the desires that are there within a sinful and wicked and deceitful heart. Environment will not help in curbing and stopping sin. For so long, environment became the center of why man has problems. We have a whole section of town, say, that is murder rate is off the charts. What we need to do, what we need to do is clean up the housing put in some flowers, and bring in a different social class into the area, that will solve the problem because it's an environment problem. It will never solve the problem. Say, how do you know that? Do you remember where sin started? The Garden of Eden. Right. The environment was really good, but the heart was sinful. Relationships will not cure us from our desire for sin. I was one of the young people who ran with the wrong crowd, just got roped in with the wrong people. And I will tell you boldly, my heart was the problem. It wanted to run with the wrong people. That's why I did it. And to change the relationships had no effect on the heart. Relationships, environment, education, all of these will fall short and fail because they do not address, nor can they address, the central point of origin for man's greatest problem, which is sin. Sin. 
is our greatest problem. Therefore, the kingdom deals with our hearts. And the gospel is about your heart. It's not about changing your environment. It's not about bringing you into the church. It's not about information. Though information and the church are are vital, it is first and foremost about who you are before a holy God. And verse 8 says, Blessed, here's the characteristic, are the pure in heart, for they and they alone, just like every other one of these Beatitudes, they and they alone shall see God. Tremendous promise. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So, the theme is the heart, but this morning we are looking directly at the heart and the attribute of purity in heart in verse 8. So, man's heart is the desperate need. It needs change like nothing else. And we know that as we come to this sixth beatitude. None of the attributes of the kingdom, catch this, none of the attributes of the kingdom to this point have pointed so clearly at the utter inability of mankind. None of them have pointed so so specifically on the inability of each and every one of us in and of ourselves to produce change or to generate these kingdom attributes. In other words, you can't make yourself pure in heart. You were born defiled in heart. And there is nothing that points more clearly than the demand and the the truth statement about the kingdom, that the kingdom is made up of those who are pure in heart, to show you that you have no ability to waltz into the kingdom on your own merit and effort. We're going to split this up into three sections for study this morning. Three components of the sixth beatitude. We're going to look at the condition. We've done this before. These are going to start sounding familiar. The condition of kingdom cleanliness. Okay, we'll call this kingdom cleanliness because we're talking about purity. And that's important because of the second part of the study this morning, the contrast of kingdom cleanliness. There is a clear contrast that the Lord is pointing out from the kingdom and those who would think that they were in the kingdom, those who are religious. So there is a condition, there is a contrast, and then finally there is a consequence for kingdom cleanliness, which is the great promise. So let's begin with the condition for cleanliness The condition of those who are kingdom clean is no different than the condition of all of the rest. And it is the first word of the beatitude. Blessed, blessed are these clean in heart, these pure in heart. Blessed is not the goal, it's not the pursuit of the kingdom citizen, it is the reality of their existence. We've talked about it before. The world is searching for happiness at every turn. It's looking for relief. It's looking for some temporal joy. It's looking for some high, some pleasure, whatever outlet it may be. It could be as innocent as a shopping spree. It could be as as vile as a drunken orgy. The world is pursuing happiness. And yet the New Testament, in the words of our Messiah, inform us that happiness is the byproduct of being a citizen of the kingdom. It comes after you have been 
brought into the kingdom. You have been birthed through new birth, John 3, into the kingdom of heaven. This is the condition of these kingdom clean people. Only the citizens of the kingdom are granted this blessed state. And you remember that it is internal and eternal, not external and temporal. Right? Happiness in the worldly sense is something that comes on from the outside and it lasts for a short amount of time and then it fades. And we have to go get it again. It's been long enough now from Christmas that all of you who are parents of young children know that temporal happiness wears off. The batteries have all died. Uh, some of them don't even work. Some toys have been discarded as, you know, those are the dumb toys. We didn't like those from the beginning. Happiness has worn off. It's temporal. It's external. But kingdom blessedness, kingdom joy, true happiness is internal. It flows from the inside out. comes from the heart and it goes out. And it is eternal. It never, ever fades. And it will culminate in the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming. Synonyms for this word, we haven't talked about this before. Synonyms for blessed would be congratulated, well-positioned, happy to the core. These are people who are to be held up as the most blessed, most happy people on the planet. Say, so who are the happiest people on the planet? I watched a show, uh, I think it was a 2020 episode just recently, that looked at happiness in a human sense, who are the happiest people in the world. And I couldn't help but be brought back to the Beatitudes. The happiest people in the world are the poorest in spirit. They mourn for sin. They are meek because they understand who they are. They are desperate for righteousness. They're merciful in every way from the heart out. They are pure in heart. They are peacemakers and they're persecuted. That's the group. If you find them, you found the happiest people on the planet. They're members, they're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is the condition of kingdom cleanliness. The uh, condition is unchanging, right? It's unchanging. All these, all these beatitudes have the same condition, and the character traits are varied. So that brings us to the contrast, and this is really the heart of what we're going to talk about for the remaining moments that we have together. The contrast of kingdom cleanliness. What is meant by the, the words, the pure in heart? The pure in heart. Let me start out by saying that we need to be careful as we study these Beatitudes to not ever shortchange them of their weight. It's easy for us to make the weight of Scripture a little lighter by just defining them very specifically. And uh, one of the ways that that has happened with this particular beatitude is that blessed are the pure in heart has basically become blessed are the pure in mind. That is, those who have pure thoughts. Mental purity. Sexual purity in the mind. He who lusts the least is the happiest kind of an idea. And I would just challenge you that certainly... Immorality in the mind would defile and be a sign of defilement within the heart and would demand purity in the heart. But that is not what the full sense of this beatitude has to bring to our attention today. That would be shortcutting. To stand here and to spend our time studying 
or to sit there and spend your time studying this passage this morning and to think only about purity as it relates to the Internet or to lusting in some other fashion would be to shortcut the much greater emphasis that we find in this beatitude. First of all, the word purity is a key in and of itself. If you go through your New Testament and you look at purity as it's given in the New Testament sense, it will reveal to you that the emphasis here is on an undivided, undivided attention, undivided affection. There is no spot. It is pure. It is single. It is only one affection of the heart. In fact, I want to walk you through some passages that call us to that kind of singular attention. Go back to the book of Psalms and to the 86th Psalm. Psalm number 86. And we'll just walk through our, our Bibles for a little bit. Psalm 86. This is a prayer of David to the Lord. In verse 11... We can read in verse 8, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. That's the false gods. Nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Now catch verse 11. Because of those truths, here's verse 11. Here's the cry of David. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. In other words, David's prayer is, Lord, my heart is prone to disunity. Unite it. Bring unity to my heart. My heart is prone to trying to hold several realities at the same time, to serving God and mammon. Unite my heart, David cries to fear your name, bring purity, bring singularity to my heart. Not only does Psalm 86 give us this, but Jeremiah, we've already read from Jeremiah in the introduction, but Jeremiah chapter 32 is another challenge to us of this same concept. And this is the promise of the Lord. Yahweh God here is promising what will be the truth for the new covenant. So this is looking forward to the coming of Christ. This is really looking forward ultimately to the second coming of Christ and the millennial reign of Christ where the blessings upon Israel will be seen in their fullness. Verse 39 says, I will give them one heart. Jeremiah 32, verse 39. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will give them a unified, a pure, a one-sided, a one-minded heart. That's the promise. It's the same promise that we find in Ezekiel. I know that your Bibles are probably uh, pages stick together in Ezekiel, but it's the same promise. You know what I mean by that, I trust. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. Same promise, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. A moldable, living heart is the idea. A heart of stone is one that's dead. It's untouched. It's lifeless. 
but the heart of flesh is one that is alive. This is the promise. I will give them one heart, verse 19 of Ezekiel chapter 11, and a new spirit I'll put within them. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now we're getting to where pages fall more freely. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 35. Paul says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. He's talking about marriage and upon an eternal perspective. Verse 35 says, he doesn't lay it to restrain them, but to promote good order and to secure, here's the purpose for Paul's instruction, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Undivided, that is pure in heart, that is singular in affection. And then probably the one that's most familiar to those of you who have been in Sunday school with us, James chapter 4 and verse 8. Listen to these words from James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. Draw near to God. This is speaking of our response to pride. How do we deal with pride? Well, here's our response, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. And then what is the description given? Sinners are in need of cleansing their hands. That is, your outward actions are proving that you're a sinner. And the one who is to cleanse or purify their heart is described in that little phrase at the end of verse 8. You double-minded. Purify your heart. You double-minded. That is, you are holding two mutually exclusive thoughts your mind is being directed by both worldly pride and by your recognition and humility before God. Therefore, purify yourselves and bring a double mind, which is unstable in all its ways, into purity, into a singular affection. An unmixed, an unpolluted, an undivided devotion. So go back to Matthew chapter 5 and to this sixth beatitude. And understand that the weight here is on the undivided attention of the heart of the kingdom citizen. What characterizes the heart of the kingdom? It is pure. It's undivided. We understand this in a human sense. Um, You've been around people who have divided attention, right? I hope that I've never done this to you, but... You've been with people who are speaking with you, and they definitely have a divided attention. In fact, they don't really have any other focus for their attention, but they'd love for it to be divided. So they just kind of look past your ear, and they're just kind of looking for anybody else that may be more interesting than whatever it is that you're saying to them. And you think, is there something they need to go do? Um, Are they waiting for a call? What is distracting this person in this conversation? I lost eye contact from the very beginning. Maybe they have one of those funny earpieces on. You're going, are they getting a call? Like, is someone else talking in their head? Why aren't they looking at me? And they say, oh, I'm listening. Oh, yeah, I heard you. You said that your car broke down. I heard you. And you say, no, you you may have heard me, but my mom used to say you didn't listen to me. Right? It's a divided attention. It's an impure attention. We want pure 
relationships. We want undivided hearts, even in our human relationships. How much more is this a characteristic of the heart that has been redeemed and brought in as a kingdom citizen? Now the contrast is potent. We've got to be careful not to abbreviate this. We've got to see this in its context. Who is Jesus addressing as a people group? Predominantly. Good. One, one more try. There's a people group. There is a ethnic Jewish people. That's right. Good. Thank you. I heard this. I take that as Jewish. Okay? Jewish people. He is addressing the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And he is addressing them with these stark contrasts to what their religious leaders were presenting to them as pure religion. And this contrast is particularly potent. Blessed are the pure in heart. Let me show you this. Let me show you the opposite that was being instructed to the people of the nation of Israel in their religious leaders. Matthew chapter 23. There are seven woes given to scribes and Pharisees. This is an amazing section of scripture. Uh, Jesus just goes pretty much, he goes off on the Pharisees and the false leaders of the religion. Verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why are they called hypocrites? For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. You see the power of the contrast of what Jesus is presenting? Luke 11 tells us the exact same thing. Luke 11, verses 38 to 40. The religious system of the day, the Pharisaic religious leaders, were presenting to the nation of Israel a purity that was simply external. It was primarily focused on what they wore, what they looked like, what they did, when they got up, how much they carried on their back on the Sabbath, how much did, did they do in their work, how much did they save, how much money did they give, how many alms. It was all about the externals. Jesus says, you want to know the characteristic of the heart of the kingdom? It is an internal purity. That's the contrast. Jesus is attacking external religious people at the core of their error. And this hasn't changed. This has not changed. We live in an American culture that still places a high emphasis on external religiosity, churchianity. Did you go to church? Do you look right? Do you act right? Do you keep the social barriers intact? then you must be okay. Surely you are a Christian. The standard is much higher. The characteristic of a Christian is not pure on the outside. It's pure on the inside. That translates to a life that is transformed externally. Right? Christianity and the gospel is all about the heart first, then the hands and the feet. And when we flop that order around and we think that we can change the inside by affecting the outside... We have fallen right into the trap of the Pharisees, right into the hypocrisy, and right into a false gospel. It's about the heart. It's about the inside. The heart, in our scriptures, when you read it, maybe you jot out in your margin here, the heart is the seat of the inner man. This is a bigger term than what we use it for today. 
the heart represents in your scriptures the totality of the inner man, right? There is an inner man. You have two components to you as a person. You have an outer man. That's what we can see. And that's what you take good care of. You comb it and shave it and do all the other things you do to it. And when you pass away, that outer man will go in a coffin and it will go in the ground and it will eventually turn back to dust. But there is an inner man that is the, uh, the real you, we say. There is an inner man. And when the inner man dies, he does not go into the coffin and does not turn back into dust. That is an eternal living person. Either goes to the presence of God, awaiting its resurrected body, or it goes to the place of the dead, awaiting its resurrected body for the eternal punishment that it will suffer when thrown into the lake of fire. So the heart is the seat, it is the whole of the inner man. It's the center of man. It's the whole of man's emotion, his will, his thoughts, his intentions, his meditations. And what does the kingdom citizen have as a characteristic? That their heart, their inner man, is pure. It is undivided. It's untainted. You, are you getting the weight of what Jesus is saying? This is unbelievable. When we start to assess the inner man and say, who am I truly focused on as a way of life? How pure is my heart? The idea is an all-encompassing thought. It's all of you. The characteristic of the kingdom is that the heart is pure. That is... the confidence of those who are in Christ. So we've seen the condition, seen the contrast to the false teaching of the day and of our day, that somehow it was about externals. But finally, the consequence and the most glorious consequence for kingdom cleanliness. Kingdom cleanliness is not about washing your hands. It's about the purity of your heart. And here's the promise given to those who are found to be pure in heart, for they shall see God. There be a better promise. They shall see God. No man has seen God. No man has seen God and lived. He is spirit, and yet the promise here for the future is that we shall see him face to face. There's a present tense sense in which those of us who are pure in heart see God more clearly today. If you are positionally pure in God, and we should probably clarify that, if you are in fact in Christ, you have come by faith, and you have been saved from the penalty of your sin by the righteousness of Christ, you have been stamped justified. You have been stamped righteous. And because of that righteousness, you are pure. Your heart is purified before a holy God. That is positional purity. It's an established fact. And there is progressive purity because you and I all know that we live still with the reality of sin in this life. And so we are progressing in our purity. In other words, the scriptures call us to pursue what we are. We are to be pursuing what we are. And as we pursue this purity that marks us as a kingdom citizen, there is a sense in which God will be more clearly seen even now 
on this earth and in this temporal sense. There is a present reality of seeing God. Romans 1 tells us, Romans 1 and 2 tell us that God has made himself known through his creation. And yet, those who do not believe, who are blinded by their sin and their love for themselves, cannot see him. We know that in our culture, in our country, certainly is not our creation around us is not attributed to the magnificent power of a holy God, right? It's attributed to some random act of progression by molecules to develop into what you see. And yet as a Christian, the more pure you become in the practical aspect of purity, the more you live out what is already true of your position in Christ, the more you will see God in every aspect of your life. There's a present reality of seeing God. You've been around people like this? You've been around somebody who sees God's hand on every aspect of their lives? They're either the most encouraging people or the most convicting, right? They're either the most encouraging people that push you forward. Yes, God is involved in everything that I see and know. Or they're the most convicting because you realize that you live your life as if There is no God. There is a practical atheism to much of our Christianity. The pure in heart will see God, but it's not really the present tense that is the focus of this beatitude. It's the future. It's the future culmination. It's the future promise that we will spend our eternity in the very presence of God. We will see him face to face as he is. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 promises us this promises for a full and unbroken view of the living God. Isn't that amazing? So we come to a passage like this and we say, well, how can I examine, how can I examine my life in light of this beatitude? How can I take a hard look at myself? Well, I'll ask you this question. How's your vision? How's your eyesight, spiritually speaking? That's the question we ought to be asking. Because there are some of us, no doubt, this morning in a group this size that are still blind. There's no view of God. There's no understanding of His presence. There's no reality of His hand in all that happens. And there is no promise for those of you who are blind. There is no promise of seeing Him in His fullness in the future. Some of you are blind and need vision for the first time. Your heart is defiled to the core. It is positionally defiled and it is progressively defiled. It is divided. There may be some aspect of the truth that you hold to, but you have never given your life in its entirety and by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow him, to be a disciple of Christ. You have no vision. There are some that are still blind. And the response of those of you who are blind this morning must be to cry out in faith that God would give you eyes to see and ears to hear that you might be saved because he has promised that all who believe, all who cry out, will be saved. That's the demand for your life this morning. If you find yourself sitting before the Beatitudes week in and week out and saying, these are not the truth about me. 
I look like everybody else here. I act like everybody else. I have my Bible open like everybody else, but these aren't true. The gospel is offered to you. The good news is that if you will humble yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross, that is, die to your own way, and follow after him, he will save you. That's the truth. That's the gospel that saves. Probably more predominant this morning, there are many of us who need a checkup and we need improving vision. Do we not? We see this. We see the purity of the heart. We see what God has done. We know that positionally he has declared us righteous because we have come to Christ by faith, and yet we don't see our lives living this reality out. And our vision is very much impaired by the impurity the divided nature of our hearts. And so we go through life and we make decisions and we say things with our mouth. And we think, where did that come from? We think things in our mind. And we, where did that thought come from? It's not a Christian thought. That is not a Christian word. It is not a Christian decision. I did not process that through the scriptures. My heart is divided. I am finding myself to be double-hearted. I'm declared pure. I've been stamped with purity. And yet my vision has been impaired. Look at a passage of scripture that I trust will be an encouragement in conclusion to you because of the nature of what we've looked at this morning. First John chapter two, chapter three rather. First John chapter three and verse two. The apostle John writing to us says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Okay? So we are not yet we are not yet completed in Christ. We will be we will be completed. We will be glorified in the future. We are God's children. That is an unchanging reality. It's positional. We have been adopted. We have been grafted in. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that is Christ, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, here's the response, here's the response. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, that's Christ, is pure. The paradox of your New Testament is that it demands of you what you already are. The demand of your scriptures is purity, and yet the characteristic of the kingdom citizen is that they are pure in heart. So be encouraged. God's grace has provided for you, the cross has provided for you all the means necessary for your vision to improve, for your heart to be purified, though it is pure in Christ. Philippians chapter 2 Probably a passage we should memorize, stick it on our dashboard in the car, stick it on the mirror in the bathroom. Philippians chapter 2, this should be a heartbeat of our theology, really. Therefore, my beloved, verse 12 says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, this is Paul, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You say, wow, so it's all on me. I've got to really push to get pure. I've got to work this thing out. Verse 13 is the, is the counterbalance of the paradox of the New Testament. For it is God 
who works in you, both to will, that is to desire, and to do or to work for his good pleasure. You're to pursue pursue purity. You're to drive after purity because it is the reality of your life, and you are to understand as you pursue it and as your vision is improved that it is God who is at work in and through you, both to will and to accomplish his good pleasure. This is to be the pursuit of the kingdom citizen. What is the declaration? What is the final declaration of this statement? Blessed are those who are undivided in their affection. Their heart, the direction of their lives, is one one way, and that way is God and God alone. Why? Because those people and those people alone will see him. That's the promise. That's the consequence. What a phenomenal truth we find in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom. That's the foundation. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because the Lord will comfort those who mourn for their sin. Comfort them with forgiveness. Blessed are the meek. Why? Because they're going to inherit the earth. That's the true mark of leadership. Meekness before God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because God will satisfy that hunger and that thirst. And ultimately, he will satisfy it in totality. It will be filled to the brim. Blessed are the merciful, because God will shower them with mercy at the judgment. Now blessed are the pure in heart, for they and they alone shall see God. Encouraging words, but searching words this morning. Those of you who have no vision, I trust you'll respond in faith that you might be forgiven, that your spirit might be broken, that you see that there is nothing in and of yourself, that you might mourn for your sin and see God transform your heart. Those of you who have vision, seen God, you will see God because you have been stamped pure. May you be ever pursuing more purity in his grace. This is the desire of our King. These are the words of our Messiah. And we need to take heed for them this morning.